0: And a warm welcome to The Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold, and every two weeks is just not enough for this segment. I like to call at least two Jews and a Gentile. And if you're like me, and I know I am, I really enjoy the fellowship around the studio. Tom Berkowitz, Aaron Broughton, and Trevor Rubenstein are my guests today. And we're always open to taking your questions, so if you have one for the panel, let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for having me. Seems us. like we yes. just did this. Yes, it does. <laughs> but yet, it's been two weeks. So here we are Looking again. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So Time I'm,
1: flies when you're having fun. <laughs> ah,
0: it does indeed. Thank you again for being here. There are uh, lots of questions that we all have, especially regarding uh, the Old Testament, Jewish history. And a couple that have come in just now is if I can just get things started, would a Jewish person find it offensive if I describe myself as a daughter of Abraham? From Galatians 3.29. I would find it
2: confusing, Bill, if you described (laughs) yourself as a daughter of Abraham.
0: Well, no, not me personally, but... (laughs) I'm glad you clarified it, so yeah. Yeah. Would a Jewish person find it offensive?
2: Yeah, and uh, I think that the... The clear answer is, uh, depends on the person,
0: right? I <laughs> love it. Um,
2: uh, but, uh, I mean, there, there's obviously truth to that that we see in scripture, mm-hmm. uh, where the Lord gives clear indication that, uh, that there are spiritual descendants of Abraham that are, that are descendants through faith. And, uh, and so of course there's truth to that. Um, and that might be even confusing and could, uh, offer up more of a conversation because uh, when a Jewish person looks at Abraham, they don't necessarily look at Abraham as, um, as a, uh, as regarding as being a faith person. They look at him as being really the individual who established uh, everything that we see coming in within the Mosaic covenant and the Torah in general. Um, And then eventually ancestry into not just the people of Israel, but also the descendants of Ishmael, right? Which, uh, which would expand into many more individuals. So, um, so yeah, it, it would be confusing, I would guess, probably mm-hmm. more so than offensive. Okay.
1: If you look at uh, Romans, where Paul wrote extensively about it, he always separated, almost everywhere he talks, he separates the physical descendants from those grafted in. So... He sees it as an ethnic and a physical colony. And inside that, he, there are those Jews that believe in Jesus, which is where he wants all Jews to be.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and looking at this, you know, in Romans especially, Israel is referring to that, the ethnic Israel. Uh, and so we go to Galatians, talk about the spiritual aspect. I my Probably my question to the the person who asked is, you know, exactly what they mean by that, what are they thinking I think there is some confusion. Well, now that I'm a Christian, I'm Jewish after all. Uh, well, it <laughs> can be tricky in how you try to explain that. But yes, I would agree with Trevor that uh, we – I'm thankful as a, as a Gentile that I am um, – I do have uh, that connection with the Jewish people spiritually uh, through – and that's only because of the Messiah, uh, Jesus, who is a fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.
1: Okay. You know, my wife, Marsha – When asked that question, she always says, "God chose me to be born as a Gentile, follower of Jesus, and so I'm going to try to be my the fullest I can of what He called me to be and Mm -hmm. who He made me to be."
2: Yeah, that that kind of brings up something, and we could we could talk on that uh, maybe briefly if that's okay, Bill. But there's uh, so there's a there's a teaching that says that uh, if you become a believer in Jesus, then you become Israel, or you become a real Jew or something to that extent. And, and you never really see that in scripture. Um, there's, there's some verses that people uh, seemingly take out of context in which they try to make themselves Israel. So for example, in Romans chapter nine, uh, verse six, it makes the statement Um, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And you'll notice something about this statement. It's not an inclusive statement. It's actually not saying that people become part of Israel through their faith, but it's actually excluding people. From the promises of Israel because they are biologically Israel, but are rebelling against the faith. So it's not an inclusionary statement. It's an exclusionary Mm. statement, which is also the same type of thing you see regarding the term Jews earlier in the book of Romans. And when we go through Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, uh, chapters 9 and 10 are, and 11 actually are all about salvation to the biological descendants of Israel. This is really the context. And so when we get into chapter 11, um, understanding that the context is salvation to the people of Israel. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 11, it says, I say then, have they stumbled, speaking of Israel, that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So we see this distinction clearly still between Jew and Gentile. Verse 12 goes on and says, Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their Fullness, so it's giving a distinction that saying that Jewish people and Gentile people are saved in similar ways. It's both through belief, as he'll he'll go on and state later in the chapter. Um, but uh, Israel is cut off from this olive tree. In this, in the, in the analogy that's used by Paul here. This is what he states. He says this in verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off, again, the context of Israel rejects leads to the salvation of the nations. So the, the branches that are broken off here are Israel. And you being a wild olive tree, speaking to the Gentiles, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So the olive tree is not Israel. Israel's cut off from the olive tree in this context, if, if you really break it down. What the olive tree is, is Jesus. It's salvation. As Jesus says that he is the vine and that we are the branches. And so what, what they're, what people are cut off from is Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike in unbelief. But what people are brought into is Jesus. And so really, when someone becomes a believer, they don't become Israel. They they become united completely in Jesus, but there's a distinction Mm. still. So good. Thank you, Charlie.
1: I think what they take is uh, from Romans 2.28, it says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. So they take that as saying those who believe in Jesus are really the spiritual Jews. But they need to keep reading. And they're cherry-picking a couple of verses out. Because in 3, 1 says, then what advantage has a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. So he goes on to what the value is. I won't read it, but... Still you know, making the distinction. The, in, he never separates the physical. What he's really saying is that those Jews that believe in Jesus are fuller in their their election as jews.
2: and, and something just incredibly important to bring up is a Jewish person is not saved apart from faith only by faith in Jesus also, Jew and Gentile alike. No distinction in that context whatsoever. The distinction more so is in promises and what God fulfills through people, either historically or prophetically, um, because he has callings in diff- through different nations and different people groups in which he fulfills his promises.
1: And, you know, even Trevor and I, who are natural branches of the olive tree, we had to be regrafted in in order to receive the promises. No one enters without going in by faith and being grafted into that olive tree.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. All right, here's another question, and this is one that is not going to go over well with many, of course, because sometimes it is really hard to come to terms with one of Jesus' difficult teachings, which is a divorce. And apparently there was the Jewish rabbi Shemai and his school said it meant adultery. The adultery was the legitimate reason for divorce, and the Jewish rabbi Hillel and his school said uncleanliness could be the reason. Um, A wife's temper, she talked to a stranger in the street. And didn't Jesus kind of keep his mouth shut on this one?
2: No. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, let, let me let me introduce this, and I'm going to pass this off. So, so the argument is based on Deuteronomy chapter 24. Okay. And uh, and in Deuteronomy chapter 24, it's an interesting section of scripture, and and it states this, starting in verse one: When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he found some uncleanliness in her. And writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. So this is really the text that that argument is based on. Mm-hmm. And, and the reality is they have no idea what this word uncleanliness means. Okay. And this is where the debate comes. Oh, I got you. And so Shammai generally in regarding uh, r- rabbinical discussion takes the more conservative position and Hillel takes kind of more of a loose interpretation um, and so, uh, and so, I think that the section that uh, my brother Aaron and my brothers Aaron and Tom have opened up here is in the Gospel of Matthew, where this now question is presented to Jesus.
3: Uh, kind of going back to Shema and Hillel, for those who might not know, those are two rabbinical schools of thought that were there prior to Jesus' time on Earth, so about a little over two thousand years ago. Okay, what has happened to in even the time of the Talmud and the early rabbinic writings the, after the destruction of the temple, that there was a lot of debate going on between, you know, Shammai, Shammai's interpretation, Hillel's interpretation. In the end, Hillel's interpretation almost always won out. It was like they, they entertained Shammai a lot. They had fun arguing about it, but in the end, yeah, Hillel, you won. And so having this uncleanness, okay, you can make whatever you want. If you burn your, you know, if You burn your husband's toast in the morning. That's good enough, you know, to divorce. Mm -hmm. It almost went to that extreme. In some cases it did. And so Jesus is really just kind of challenging that even deeper, you know, and he talks even in other contexts about um, such as adultery. If you look upon a woman with adultery in her heart, you've committed, you know, so it's even deeper than just this bill of divorcement, things like that. Jesus is really going to the
1: heart of the issue.
0: Well said, Aaron. you're, You're shrugging your shoulders like it's all been said.
1: It has been. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like Trevor. I'm not going to wade too deep into this because I think Aaron did a great job. Yeah, he did a
0: great job. Thank you for that. Thank you for that, distinc- th- th- that distinction. All right, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, lots more. If you have a question, send it over, 877-933-2484. You're listening to at least two Jews and a Gentile. We'll be back. Thank you for tuning into the show today. It's at least two Jews and a Gentile. I've got Tom, Aaron, and Trevor as my panel today. We are, just before break, we're discussing the uh, giving, handing out a certificate, well, talking about divorce, and, and the Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Obviously, men called the shots when it came to divorce, And if you received a certificate of divorce, of what value was that and what did that mean?
2: Yeah, and it's a it's a question, right, Bill? That needs to be answered from the from the context. When you when you read the story in uh, Deuteronomy twenty four, there is a condemnation in this uh, in this story because after uh, after the man finds some uncleanliness in her, which uh, which Jesus seems to give indication is adultery. He seems to in in uh, for in Matthew chapter nineteen. Um, but if he finds this uncleanliness in her and writes her a certificate of divorce, um, that he then sends her away with it. And in verse two, it says, and when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband, so this is the individual that gave her the certificate of divorce, Or excuse me, this is not, this is the latter husband, the second husband. If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies and took her as a wife, then for her former husband to divorce her, must not take her back and be his wife after she has defiled after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the lord so the actual condemnation um that's given in this section is not at least stated here within the divorce itself the condemnation has to do with then if that divorced individual marries someone else to take them back okay so so the so the certificate here um, it's it seems like very possibly that the reason for this is to allow her to remarry uh, very, very possibly. Again, this is debated because mm-hmm. we don't have any uh, from the time of Moses official certificates of divorce. But um, but that seems to be the reasoning, because why does she need it and not him? Because if it allowed him to remarry, then he would need a certificate. he would need some kind of justification, but that doesn't seem to be the problem. The problem is what about her mm. and uh and so possibly uh you know the the other the punishment for adultery is often murder so so this is a this is he would not murder i shouldn't say that it's not it's justifiable, i guess, according to the to the mosaic covenant, but it would be stoning right for an adulterous person so so this is actually giving mercy in the context of some form of uncleanliness, which is seems to be interpreted as a form of ad- adultery. And then, so it's, it's giving mercy to this person and then saying, no, you can marry someone else because really, you would have to be a virgin in order to remarry. And this might be some form of explanation for why this person isn't or why they could be remarried. Like we don't know for sure, but it seems to give some form of, of permission for remarriage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 19 is that it's, it's never good to divorce. Uh, it's always better to not divorce. And so, uh, and so it, it, while while someone can remarry if this is the situation, I think that he seems to be emphasizing that, well, the heart of the problem is this shouldn't be happening anyway. Um, of course it does happen, and that's kind of the reality.
1: Right. He says in Matthew nineteen eight, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And, you know, Jewish teachers of the law recognize a legal category called concession, something that was permitted only because it was better to regulate sin than to relinquish control over it altogether. You know, but given God's purpose in creation in Genesis 2, uh, 24, or divorce naturally fell into that category, and we can look at Malachi uh, 2, 14 to 16 for it.
2: Pastor?
3: <laughs> a couple thoughts. Yeah, I'm looking at, you know, even let's bring it into mind, Jesus' own birth. When Mary and Joseph found out, when Mary found out she was a child, she tells Joseph, what would be to fly on in the wall in that room in that conversation? You know, um, we know that Joseph had all kinds of um, struggle with that. He was even minded to put her away, uh, divorce her privately. And we have to kind of understand this, that in the Jewish perspective, even today, uh, especially in Orthodox Judaism, that it is the husband who takes the wife. You know, that is who marries. Even when a ring is given, for example, the ring is interesting. Uh, uh, We have a ring ceremony in most weddings. And uh, in Jewish customs, you put a ring on the index finger, which interestingly, if you count your number of hands, that's your seventh finger. Um, And I actually was interested... Talked to a friend of mine in Israel, actually. said, so, well, why do we do exactly that? What's the meaning of that? And the, this was a rabbi's response. He says, we do that because it's the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Mm. And so when she takes it, in, and especially in an Israeli wedding, you take that ring and you kind of show it off. Look at, it, I got a ring, wedding ring on my finger. Anyways, it's a public saying that I'm going to be faithful to my husband. And so, anyways, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that. Now, whether she realizes that or not, that's just a rabbi's interpretation. You probably have a 100 rabbis with 200 explanations. But nonetheless, that's, I thought, a good one uh, of that. In Joseph's case, he's wanting to make, not make her a public example, which he could have. By Judaic law, he could have put out, you know, kicked around the street corner, and they could have stoned her, you know, legally, uh, according to the law, but he didn't, which tells us a lot of his character. And so that fact that she was not – no, here's, here's the thing too. And um, in again, Orthodox society in Israel as well, there is um, – uh, to get a divorce, a woman cannot divorce her husband. Only the husband has the authority or privilege, whatever you want to say, to divorce her. And so there are court cases even now that are pending for years that the husband will not give up his wife. So I'm just looking at some practical examples kind of in
1: looking
0: at these texts. That's really interesting, Aaron.
1: I think we've kind of circled this. Okay. Yeah. All right. Here's another
0: question that's come in from a faith family uh, member. Is it true that sometimes the inheritance in the Jewish culture was given while the father was still living? So is it so awful that the prodigal son was so bad in asking for his share of the inheritance? Is that something that... That was happened in Jewish culture.
1: I think it was motivation. In the prodigal son, what he was asking his father, I wish you were dead, mm-hmm. so give me my inheritance. But if a father wanted to sh- share or give his inheritance, he could do that voluntarily. Like David gave Solomon the throne while he was still alive to settle an issue with his brother that was kind of grabbing the throne and wasn't lawfully given. So yeah, you can, a a father could give his property, but if you ask for it, you're saying you're as good as dead. Mm -hmm. All right. Was being a true prophet a high stress job? (laughs) I mean, according to
0: Deuteronomy 13, a couple signs of a true prophet is you You must not direct people to follow other gods. And whatever the prophet says, something about a future event, those events must come to pass. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Otherwise, Your your life is on the line. It (laughs) seems that way, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. Uh, I guess that you would have to be pretty confident of your position. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, uh, and not just, not just stressful in that, I guess, uh, when we read the words of Elijah, right, uh, is, uh, is he was often confronting, um, the Kings of Israel, uh, and he, he makes a statement in, in first Kings chapter, uh, 19 verse 10, he, and he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Isn't that interesting to where uh, if you if you appease the people, then God instructs you to be killed if you're giving false mm-hmm. prophecy. Mm-hmm. But if you appease God, then the people want you killed. Mm. Um, I, I, I think that that probably is the definition of a stressful <laughs> job. I would All right,
0: let's talk about Jeremiah 28 a little bit. You've got Jeremiah told the leaders of Judah that the nation would be conquered by Babylon. But then along comes Hananiah and, and he stood up and said that the Lord had given him a, given him a different message and claimed that Jeremiah was not a true prophet. So here we go. Here's a great illustration perhaps of, of what happens. Jeremiah told Hananiah that within a year, Hananiah would be dead and within the year he died.
1: Right. Jeremiah's biggest uh, opponent wasn't uh, the people, it was other prophets. Mm-hmm. It was false pr- prophets. And I think that goes to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 24, many false prophets will arise. And they're going to be doing things in my name. And I think he meant Jewish false prophets. I don't think he was talking about Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So you're always, if you have truth, you're always going to have a lie that's going to come up and work against it. So it requires, you know, being on your face before God and asking for discernment, because sometimes they both sound good. Mm -hmm. Would Jesus have
0: called himself, on his resume, a prophet?
2: I think so.
3: Yes, well, he was the prophet like unto Moses from Deuteronomy 1818, 18, for example, mm-hmm. so he's that fulfillment of that um, he said, you know, for example, he talked about the sign of Jonah, he says, behold, the greater than Jonah is here, uh, referring to himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think he would. He would, in fact, Jesus fulfilled that role of prophet, priest, and king in that regard. Okay. Absolutely.
1: I mean, just the Matthew 24 I mentioned before, it's a, the longest prophecy on the end time, Matthew 24 and 25. That Jesus ever taught when you put those those chapters, and they're all prophetic.
2: Mm-hmm. He, d- he definitely meets every qualification of a prophet, of course, in that he speaks from the Lord. Uh, he is uh, he's inspired by God. Um, he understands what the, the will of God and the direction of God um, and professes that to the world, often giving them warning and hope. Um, and so, yes, he he definitely fulfills every role of a prophet.
1: Mm-hmm. He spoke in what uh, the teachers would call prophetic uh, present, so or prophetic uh, perfect. So he's speaking here, but the words are for the future also.
3: Mm-hmm. I think a simple explanation, what is a prophet? What is his role? It's foretelling. That's kind of what we normally think of, something that's going to happen in the future. But it's also forthtelling. This is thus saith the Lord. This right. is what God says. Proclamation. Absolutely. And so if you want to look at who is the epitome of that type of prophet, Isaiah, David, you know, you could put it that way. But here is Jesus. He's the perfect, ultimate fulfillment of that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, I think really simply maybe even to look at this, uh, the the prophet spoke the words from God. Jesus is the word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so really kind of even in a complete fashion, he is he is the fulfillment of what they were doing.
0: All right. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. Lots more time with at least two Jews and a Gentile. If you have a question, let me know. 877-933-2484. Be right back. It's
1: the afternoon.
0: It is time for more of at least two Jews and a Gentile, Tom, Aaron, and Trevor on my panel. and we we're just talking about prophets in the Old Testament, but did you guys know that I was going somewhere with this because I want to talk about prophecy in the New Testament. Is that, uh, is that a gift that's still alive and well?
2: Oh, that's a fun topic.
0: <laughs> Only one of the most controversial uh, topics in Scripture, but
2: why not? Let me start off by making it a little bit less controversial. Thank right? you. Trevor. Let's, let's start with you're that. such
1: a peacemaker. Uh, yes, that's that's is. my
2: job. So, uh, <laughs> so, so let's look at this. So, in in Deuter or excuse me, in the Gospel of Matthew, actually in verse uh, in chapter twenty four, um the people are looking at the temple, right? Um, And and they ask, they ask Jesus, you know, they ask him, uh, do you see how magnificent this temple is in in verse one? And and Jesus goes on and says, "Um, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, as I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. This is, this is such a, Important scripture that is vastly overlooked if you're not a Jewish person looking okay. to reach Jewish people with the gospel, because according to um, to Amos chapter three, I believe verse seven, it states that God does not do anything without first revealing it to His servants, the prophets, and there's the Lord historically always with the people of Israel. He gave them a contemporary prophet in order to warn them about the things that were going to happen so that they would turn to the Lord ahead of time. And so in this context, this is fascinating because the temple is destroyed eventually in 70 AD. So this is about 40 years after the time of Jesus' ministry. And if Jesus does not warn the people of Israel about the destruction of the temple, then there is not a Jewish person in the history of all of of, uh, of Israel during this time period that uh, that warned them about this coming destruction, Jesus establishes himself as a prophet. And the importance to establishing yourself as a prophet is in establishing yourself as a prophet is you are saying that uh, is is this is showing that what you state is true. And so if Jesus then if if what he's stating is true, which clearly it is, he's the only person to prophesy about the destruction of the temple as a contemporary. Um if what he's stating is true, then everything else that he says about himself must be true. So he must be the king uh, the, that they were waiting for the coming messiah, the the Lord himself as he professes, and the suffering servant. And so this is really the establishment of what he is, because what often what a prophet would do, at least during and Jesus himself is functioning as a prophet, as we see in the Hebrew scriptures, very much so is establishing that what he says is true. And this is done through a short term prophecy so that people can look at the rest of his words and recognize the truth to those things Um, today. Uh, it could be different. And and I think that this is argued and debated, of course, as we know, amongst people who believe in the continuation of the gifts versus those who believe that the gifts have ceased. But I think that the office of the prophet continues to be important, at least in concept, no matter what your position is, because a prophet, what they do is they give warning, right? They give hope and a prophet uh, and, and a prophet always is somebody that tries pointing people back to holiness, and of course, this is a very important position within the church. If we discount this position, not necessarily uh, in that a prophet is is speaking of the Lord, um, but somebody that trying to hold people to a to a standard of holiness is very important and something that needs to continue no matter what somebody's view is regarding the gifts of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Well said, Trevor.
1: Thank you right. for that. And Paul said it was one of the foundational gifts of the church in Ephesians 4. He said there were some apostles, some prophets, some pastors, evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Those are the position of the church. And you always need that one person when the church is going one direction and they they look at the scripture, they see the truth and they're able to relate it today. De- and be that voice crying in the wilderness, no, no, we're compromising. We need to keep going this other direction. It does, at least one thing it does, it causes a dis, uh, a discussion. And sometimes that discussion can be hard, but it's what their role is.
3: I think a lot of people sometimes when they hear that, especially today, you're thinking like a Nostradamus. You know, we're going to, what's the future going to be, you know, um, You know, is America going to be still here in 50 years? You know, classic uh, question we often get is, uh, "Where is the United States in prophecy?" Mm -hmm. My answer is, it's right next to Guatemala. (laughs) You know, it's not mentioned. We don't know, and and, you know where that plays in the grand scheme of things. But I think to uh, my brother's point here is, um, really, the idea and the purposes of these gifts is to point people back to a gift of holiness and to it's really a shared life in Christ. Mm-hmm. Pointing us back to that, and um, and so I think sometimes people are looking for the sensational, okay, and really a lot of the life that we have is ordinary, and that's really a spirit led life, um, being led by the spirit, um, having a renewed mind by the Word of God, and again focusing back on Jesus Christ. So my question is this: that if someone is thinking about, well, I heard someone prophesying, or that does that bring us
2: back to to Jesus ultimately? Mm-hmm. And, and the, the canon of scripture is closed. And, and whether people are charismatic or cessationist, they all believe that. Okay. And so whatever a prophet would do, nobody believes that what they speak becomes extra scripture. If they do it, that's clearly heretical. Um. So, uh, so no matter what people's positions are, that's that's an essential on both sides. Sometimes people would think that uh, charismatic individuals would assume that. Well, if prophets are still alive, then when they would say something, that that would create scripture. And they don't prescribe to that idea of a prophet at the mm-hmm.
1: Right, and really, God is in the transformation business. He's not in the affirmation business. And sometimes that can get into. Uh, Thin ice, but somebody has to call it back. We can't affirm this lifestyle because Jesus didn't call us to affirm it. He called us to transform people's lives Mm -hmm. with his word. Yeah. Amen.
0: So if I said to you, hey, Aaron, I've got a prophecy for you. You're going to meet a stranger in the next two weeks and you're going to share Christ with them. What would you say to me?
3: Well, we're supposed to go out daily to witness, so let him come you know bring it on.
0: Would you think I was a little cuckoo or what
3: uh I'll pray for you okay <laughs> I, I think I think those are people who would say that, and if you say that, I'm sure it has great intentions and a great heart, yeah, and my challenge is well, compare whatever you are thinking uh let you know let the spirit speak within ourselves right um. And so, and does this confirm what the scriptures say? Okay. I think that's the ultimate.
0: First Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy.
1: You know, I think it's important when we talk about this, that you need people like that in the church who can see something, maybe in a lifestyle. How many pastors have fallen because they've fallen into sexual immorality? And maybe that wasn't their intention, but nobody was watching their back, and they didn't pick up a subtle uh, seduction. And, but somebody else saw it, and they just kind of, oh, what is she after? But they never confronted. And pretty soon it germinates, and you have a fall. Because none of this just happened. People noticed it, but they didn't say anything because maybe of the person's position or they wasn't socially acceptable. But I can tell you, my wife and my daughters are much more perceptive in some areas like that than I am. I mean, I'm clueless. It just passes over my head. But they're not. Yeah. And did they raise the red flag?
0: I wish you would have told me you were clueless before I booked you on the show.
1: Well, Bill, it's one of the things you just learned in live radio. Okay, yeah, and, and Bill, so. if you did, haven't
2: recognized that by now, maybe you're close.
1: <laughs> <but>. <laughs>
0: Touché, Trevor. Aaron, you were talking about foretelling versus forth telling. Explain that again. Uh,
3: like I said, when we think of a pr- prophet or the role of a prophet, that was generally the two categories of their work. And so a, a fourth. Let's start with the foretelling, because that's what most people think of that. You're thinking of the future, uh, well, for example, Matthew 24, that Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would be destroyed. That was a foretelling, uh, or excuse me, foretelling. A foretelling is like a thus say the Lord. This is the message for today for the people. Um, uh, consider your ways. I'm going back to the minor prophets, for example. Sure. Um, and that, that was a message that was on the ground at the street for that time. Um, you think of someone like Jeremiah, for example, uh, that he was preparing them for captivity into uh, babylon he was warning them uh let's not go to egypt for example um isaiah 53 another prophecy that would happen about 700 years after it was written that's a foretelling um, and at the same time there was um a, a foretell or a fourth come now let us reason together mm-hmm. you know there at the beginning of isaiah so that was the two general roles of, of a prophet
0: appreciate that all right, we're going to take a little break. We'll be right back with more At Least Two Jews and a Gentile in just a minute. <laughs> Welcome back to the show At Least Two Jews and a Gentile. I have Trevor, Aaron, Tom... We are uh, open to your questions, eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. So, if you were given six months to preach on any book in the Old Testament, what would you gravitate towards, and what would animate you more than anything else? That's a good question. Say that one more time, <laughs> Bill. Well, if you had six months to preach from a book in the Old Testament, what book would it be? Why? And what animates you about that book? Everyone's looking at the pastor. <laughs> well, we're looking at you, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Uh, I tell you what, I, I tell my people a lot that my favorite book of the Bible is the one that I'm in right now. And so just having a love for the Word of God, you know, the Word of God is inspired, God-breathed. And so there's value in every single book of the Bible, and even the genealogies. I'll be honest with you, one of my favorite books of the Bible in the Old Testament is the book of Leviticus. Really? And sometimes people read that it's like, man, this is going to help me get to sleep at night. I'm having just a rough <laughs> <tough> evening, <laughs> you know. You have all the different sacrifices, things that are going on. And I tell you what, every time I read through and I try to read through the Bible, my own discipline is twice a year. But whenever I get to Leviticus, I just love it. I love to just slow down. And I think uh, one thing that's really interesting is that in the middle of Leviticus, here's here's just one one reason mm-hmm. uh, among many. In the book of Leviticus, which is kind of the center of the Torah, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, uh, that Leviticus in the center, but the middle of that section is actually has to do with the laws of the lepers. And probably for some people say, okay, this is really boring me. You know, why am I listening to this? Well, here at Two Jews and a Gentile, we're tackling Leviticus. So, (laughs) (laughs) but here's, here's the thing is this, that in the midst of going back to Genesis and you see the fall and the sin that's passed along, um, uh, all people you know, that we deal with, well, how can we be right with God? That is the big message of the Torah and really of Leviticus. How can someone be right with God? And in a sense, we are all like that leper. A lepers, when they were identified, they were kicked out of camp. Think of like Miriam, the sister of Moses, for example. She was taken without the camp for about a week, you know, as the story says. But really, that middle section of Leviticus t- deals with that. How does that happen? In order to be for a leper to have been cleansed, they had to have been identified by the priest mm-hmm. for that total cleansing. And what happens right after that, it leads right into the middle of Deuteron- or Leviticus. Right after that, you'll deal with the Day of Atonement. And, so, and then you lead a little bit later on, the Feast of Israel, see God's plan of redemption on a yearly cycle, for example. But here's the one thing, and I'll leave it at that. I'd like to hear what these guys have to say, too, is that... When you see the priest that declared the leper healed and cleansed, you don't actually see that actually acted out until Jesus heals the lepers. And he says, go show yourselves to the priest. First time, mm. at least recorded, that we know of that that's happened since the time of Moses. Wow. Great example. Wow, that's really interesting.
0: interesting. So let's go to Leviticus. All right? Yeah, I well, love that, Aaron. Once again,
1: Aaron humbles me. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I'm really proud of the fact that I every year for the last 40, yeah. 41 years, I run, th- I read through the Bible from cover to cover, in addition to all the studying I do. So not only can he speak Hebrew, he's twice as holy as I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, the book well, I've been... I'm,
3: I'm named after the high priest,
1: Yeah, you know? but I had nothing to do with the golden
3: calf. That yeah. wasn't me.
1: <laughs> the book I've been focusing on is Daniel. And... From this point of view, the theme of Daniel to me is how to keep kosher in a non-kosher world. And I'm really focused in on Daniel's prayer life. I mean, in Daniel 10, he was fasting and praying, and he started a war in the heavens. And that's what I want to be able to do. How did he keep pure for 60 some years. He, he came there as a 15, 16 year old kid. And when Daniel 10 was, he was about 85 years old. How did he keep so holy? And he f- provoked kings to jealousy. He provoked uh, his colleagues to another form of jealousy. Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him because he was holy. And whenever there was sin in the camp, they called Daniel to straighten away. I want to learn how to live like Daniel. And, you know, when he was praying in Deuteronomy 10, he knew because two years before he was given the vision of when the Messiah was coming and he knew he was going to be dead. Yet he remained faithful and continued to, to pray and he started a war in heaven. Love the guy.
0: Mm. Thank you for that, Tom Berkowitz.
2: Yeah. So, uh, I, I'd go back, I think to the Torah, I I would, uh, I'd look at Deuteronomy. Um, it's a conclusion really of the entirety of the Torah of the Mosaic covenant where a lot of that is recapped, but also, um, something that always strikes me in the book of Deuteronomy is the consistent call for intimacy with God and, uh, and the desire for something deeper. And so it, it goes beyond the simple instructions and uh, and goes and goes into that there's more to this than the instructions the instructions are pointing to something deeper we we have to know god we have to recognize him and even um the song of of moses at the very end in in deuteronomy chapter 32 where we see the clear prophetic message in verse 21, where the Lord says that because Israel went to other gods, God is going to go to other people. So we see the redemption of the nations just very powerfully presented through the book. And uh, yeah, that's, that would probably be it because of the greater hope and the greater need to connect to our Lord. Mm-hmm.
0: When you have conversations with people, and I know Trevor, you have a real heart for the Jewish community, as Tom, I know you do as well. And I know Aaron, you do as well too. Do you find that you are confronting people who are able to think for themselves?
1: That's
2: a good question.
1: Very good question. Can you clarify "think for themselves"? What do well, you? Tra- I'm trying to think about it. So. Yeah,
0: <laughs> you're thinking for yourself. When you when you provide them with information that will challenge their mindset, do they welcome it? Do they go, "Huh, I need to rethink that." That's new information. That sounds very compelling. And it, I need to analyze that, or do they just show up with a big roadblock and say, no, that's not what, what's in my head, and I therefore can't go there. I think one one key part that, especially when we're witnessing to
3: someone, is remember is ultimately the Holy Spirit that draws them. So we cannot argue someone into heaven. There is a, there's a role for apologetics, for sure. There's times to debate and look at the facts and information. But ultimately, it's the fact that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners like you and me to both Jew and John to save the world. And so that's something to talk about the resurrection. How can you really explain the resurrection? Um, you know, emphatically that has to ultimately a matter of belief. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit will draw that person. So sometimes you might need to explain things along the way and be ready for that. And if you don't know the answer, say, I don't know, let me find out and get back with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep that communication open.
2: Okay. Yeah. It- Sorry, go ahead. Go, no, age but, no. before boot. <laughs> you know, I I, I think uh, so that that I'll go first, Tom.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not <gonna> <laughs> so
2: so I so I think that uh, something something really important here is is if you care about the people that you're talking to and you really care, uh, you can engage them in a way that you recognize they will receive, um, and and it really starts with caring for the other person because. Uh, Because if I just want to tell them something as opposed uh, that I want to communicate with them, there's a distinct difference. Um, Often, sometimes, again, uh, individuals can just be completely shut off for no apparent reason. But I think more often than not, um, the importance is that uh, recognition that if, if they are shut off, maybe it's on me. Um, and, uh, and maybe I'm not engaging them. Maybe, maybe I'm not paying close enough attention to how to continue this conversation. But I mean, my, my experience has been overwhelmingly people are, uh, will contemplate something that's presented if it's presented in a way. Um, that, uh, that allows them to think deeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, as Jewish people, we ask questions, yeah, right, so in our good. conversations, as opposed to, uh, simply, it's this, this, and this, what are you gonna do, right? Yeah. Um, so, so you wanna draw it out, because you really want it to be their conclusions. Um, one of my favorite things is, is really, uh, having somebody read the Word of God. Um, because it takes me out of the picture. And, and then it really makes it between them and God, less of me, more of more of that connection, which is ultimately where we're trying to go and just simply asking questions about, well, what does this text mean? Or what do you understand from this? Uh, seems to be compelling. And, and overwhelmingly, I see people respond. Well, mm-hmm. Even the question, the way I phrased it, was
0: probably not phrased well, because I don't know if anyone really thinks for themselves. I think people align themselves with beliefs that exist. You either believe in God or you don't believe in God. You didn't come up on that on with that on your own. Right.
1: I was at a social function and I was standing next to this Jewish doctor who is a specialist, and he was like a rocket scientist compared to me. But I overheard <laughs> some of the things he was saying. And everybody went and watched the I think the World Series was on so I said to him, I I couldn't help but hear that your daughter is coming back to Orthodox Judaism. Are you there? He said, no, I'm not. In fact, I'm secular moving that way. And he said, how about you? And I said, well, I'm a Messianic Jew. And he said, what's that? I said, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And the next question he asked me is one of the few that really floored me. He says, so what do you think about the book of Revelation? (laughs) (laughs) Because you're the expert now. (laughs) So I said, you know Revelation? He said, no, no. I said, well, tell me, why would you ask a question like that? And, you know, so we just take a... Yeah. I don't want to fall into that mousetrap, but, you know. Yeah. Just keep the conversation going like Trevor... Like Aaron said, Ask see good, where it's going. It's not about me; it's about them. Amen. Ask good questions,
0: gentlemen. Thank you once again for another uh, great time of fellowship and uh, being in God's Word together. Thank you very much. That's all the show we have for tonight. Uh, thank you for uh, joining me and listening and to the program and supporting Faith Radio. My guests today have been Tom Berkowitz, Aaron Broughton, and Trevor Rubenstein. That's our show. Have a great night. I'll see you next.